the further everybody sits to the back, the closer I will come. Until I drive you out the door. All right. Sure. That's nice and loud. I don't think the TV is on at the back. Do you know how to switch it on? Ah, thank you, my sister. Last week, Sunday night, I left a uh, video for those who were here because we were out in uh, Idaho. And the week before that, we started with Acts chapter 3, which is a truly incredible story. If you have your Bible with you, you're welcome to just scroll through that again. And we know that the apostles performed many other miracles that's not recorded. I mean, if we had to record like John says, all of the things that the Holy Spirit did, for example, in the book of Acts, uh, well, the, the book of Acts sort of refers to, I mean, they the book of Acts would not be as small as it is. I think there were incredible things that happened when the, the church was established. So it seems like Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he picks and chooses which events to include in the, the, the writings that we do have, in the Acts account, the Acts of the Apostles. And he seems to include this story in the beginning of the third chapter. Now we know sort of what's happening in the book of Acts. We know that um, Jesus had said to the disciples to wait in Jerusalem. That they will receive power from above. To do what? To establish his kingdom throughout the whole known world. And that word for power is dunamis, right? Where we get the word dynamite from. And so... Jesus says, I'm going to give you weapons to wage war, to bring my kingdom to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see happen in the book of Acts. Then in chapter 2, we find this actually starting to happen. The Spirit comes down upon the disciples. They start speaking in languages that they didn't know. That's through this power of the Spirit. That's a weapon. It's a weapon in kingdom terms to draw the people in Jerusalem towards that house. Where they were going to preach. And then Peter stands up and he preaches the first time the gospel message. And the people who were there, I think that they were ordinary people from the neighborhood. They come to this house. They were ordinary Jews from different places of the world. But they came to this house and they heard the gospel. And 3,000 of them repented and got baptized that day. That must have been an incredible event. I mean, just think about Peter must have had a monstrous voice on him. Imagine 3,000 people. I wonder how that worked. I wonder if it worked like that. Like he was preaching to 3,000 people or was he preaching and then one guy told another and that's how it just spread that day. And, but either way, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit had done his work. So that's sort of in chapter 2. And then chapter 2 sketches for us the picture as well as to, okay, so this is the first time that we've got Christians now. This is the first time that there's this church thing. What do these guys do? And we dealt with that on one Sunday night as well. Luke is trying to paint a picture for us as how these events unfolded. And how this church came to be. And then in chapter 3, he switches over to Peter and John going to the temple. And there's this guy sitting at the gate called Beautiful, right? And it's made from Corinthian bronze, which is the most valuable metal. It's a mixture of gold and silver and all the costly metal. And, and this gate must have been apparently quite beautiful. This, this guy is 
He was 40 years old, right? And he's, and he's sitting by the, by the gate to the temple, by this gate, and he is begging for, he's begging for money. And Peter and John obviously arrive. The text says that he saw them, and so he was obviously going to ask them for some help. And he's sitting by the gate, as I said last time, because I think you would have better success sitting by the gate of the temple than sitting by the gate to McDonald's or the gate to the prostitute house. Why would you be more successful? Well, because it's religious people. They're going to worship now. And, I mean, it's just, they're all beggars going to the temple because they're going into the temple to beg God for something else. And so if you or yourself were a beggar, you're probably more prone to help a beggar. You cannot go and worship God now and not care about the guy sitting by the gate who's never walked in his life. And Peter calls on him and says, hey, look at me. He probably didn't want to look at him because he felt embarrassed to beg. He felt shame. And Peter then, when he looked at him, said, silver and gold I don't have, but this I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the text says that his ankle strengthened. His ankles, and he could, and he could stand up. And, and he didn't just walk around. The text says he went walking and leaping and praising God, which is an incredible miracle. He's never walked in his life. So the neurons in his brain connecting to his feet just all worked within an instant. Absolute, total miracle. Now, I don't think this is the only time that the, the apostles performed great miracles, like I said. I mean, the, 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 the book of Acts sort of refers to it, that some people just wanted to f be under the shadow of some of the apostles. They just wanted to touch the handkerchief of, of Paul, for example. So, this is the story. And the question that we want to ask tonight is, why does Luke record this miracle? And I think it's because of what this miracle led to. And that's the direction that we are going to go in tonight. Let's read the text further. We're in Acts chapter 3 from verse 11 to 26. That's the section of text we'll deal with tonight. This is directly after the miracle. The text says in verse 11, While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? So you're picturing what is happening here. Peter and John, they move into the temple now. Remember, they were by the gate, but they're going into the temple. This guy that was healed, he could have made a decision to run the other way. He could have run home. His mom might have been still alive. Mom, look, I can walk. He doesn't do that. He goes into the temple. He brings the praise of God into the temple. He comes to give honor and praise and glory to God in the temple. And this is a reflection of this guy's heart. He must have had a good heart. And he's holding on to Peter and, and John. I don't be funny. If, if somebody heals me after 40 years, of not, well, I would probably also attach myself to them. Because it's incredible. They're incredible people. They're connected to God. What I find interesting in this, in this text is, the people were crowding towards them. What is it? They came running to them. Why? Now, the text doesn't say so. But I, I suspect this guy made a noise. I suspect this guy, and the previous verses do say this, that he was praising God. And I don't think it was soft. I think it's like, 
It's like, hey, I can walk. I can run. I've been healed by God. And he was shouting these things. And I think this is what happens here. And it's very much similar. And I want you to keep this in your mind. It's very much similar to what happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, there was a sound. And then the people came. Do you remember that? I think here again is a sound. But this time it's the sound of the voice of a man. Who's praising God because he can walk. The sound turns to people's eyes. Well, who's this guy? And they see, oh my goodness. This is the guy that sits at the gate and beg. He's walking. This is incredible. Let's go check it out. And so they rush to Peter. And there's your word. The same word. Power. Peter is saying to these guys, hey, it's not, it's not our power. We didn't do this. Who brings the power, ladies and gentlemen? We saw it in Acts chapter 1. You'll receive what? Power. Dunamis. Same Greek word. You'll receive dunamis from heaven. Here we see the dynamite. What does the dynamite do, ladies and gentlemen? The dynamite paves the way for the preaching of the gospel, as you'll see tonight. I love what Peter and John do. What they do here is they take the attention off themselves. They had an opportunity here to say, hey, we are great. We walk with Jesus, man. We're pretty cool. Yeah, it's us. They don't do that. They say it's him. I find it incredible that Jesus is dead. Well, he's dead to many people on the planet. The disciples knew he was alive, but he's not on the planet. But he still manages to make his presence known on earth, in the temple. He brings his power into the temple. Let's read the next few verses. Verse 13. The God of Abraham. Now, I want you to, to, to know. Now, Peter is preaching now. These people are coming. Same as Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching. The people come. Okay. God gives me a crowd. Let me talk to these guys. Okay. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers. He, he associates himself with these people. He says, we're on the same page, man. We're of the same family, the same background. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, listen to this. You. You guys, the people running to this guy, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed. Yes, like this is crazy. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. We are witnesses of what? Well, in a sense, they are witnesses of everything. We saw you guys. We saw you when you said to Pilate, kill him, kill him, kill him. We saw that. But we also saw him die. And we saw him being raised from the dead. We saw him after he was raised from the dead. And it's almost like Peter is saying, okay. I think Peter was like in that moment, he's sort of like pausing. Okay, I didn't expect this. I was just going to the temple to pray. That's what it says in the first verse of chapter 3, isn't it? We, they went to the temple to pray. Then they meet the guy on the way, and they decide to do something good for him. It's interesting how God will open up opportunities for us to do some great things for him, or he will use us as we go on our way. And it will, we can't create this ourselves. We can't create these glorifying moments ourselves. The Spirit does this through us when we're just obedient. That's incredible. And so, so he's got this, and, and I think he's like there, and, and he's thinking, well, okay, God, since you give me this opportunity to talk to these people, 
let me just be straight with him. He's got a captive audience. They're going to go nowhere because they know this is a miracle and they cannot deny it. They can't go anywhere. They have to find out what is going on. And then he says, I'm just reiterating what they're saying to sort of paint a picture. He says, God glorified Jesus. So he starts with God when he preaches now. He says, God, and by the way, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, he's saying your God, our God, the God, not some other God, our God. You know what he did to Jesus? The God of heaven and earth? He glorified him. But you know what you did to Jesus? I've listed it here. It's in the text. You surrendered him. That's the Greek word. You surrendered him. You gave him over to Pilate. You surrendered him. You disowned him. What does that mean? That's an interesting Greek word. You disowned him. In other words, you owned him. He was yours, but then you disowned him. What is that about? Well, he was a Jew. The text says in John chapter 1 that he came to his own but his own did not recognize him. His own people rejected him. It's like you come to your family, your blood relatives, and they say, no, we don't want anything to do with you. This is the hardest words that you could say to somebody. You disowned your own person, your own family, your own Jew, your own, your own Messiah, you disowned him. So not only did you, did you hand him over, surrender him to Pilate, but you disowned him. You said he's not part of you. You want nothing to do with him. And then you killed him. That's what it says then in verse 15. You killed the author of life. You're responsible for his death. And not only that, you exchanged him for a murderer, Barabbas. That's crazy. He's eating into these guys. Now, this is, you know what's interesting for me when I looked at this? I thought to myself, Peter, Peter, dude, relax. You are saying, there's a crowd in front of you, maybe hundreds of people, and you are telling them they killed Jesus and they're murderers. Do you think it's a good idea to tell a bunch of murderers they are murderers when they potentially can murder you too? It's like, I don't, I don't know if you, you guys have heard um, about these Idaho um, killings. Did you hear about that? It's crazy. It's a crazy story. It's like this, this guy, I mean, goes into a house and he just slaughters four students. It's like me, what Peter is doing here is like, I'm locked in a room with the Idaho murderer. Or it's me and Ted Bundy. And I say to him, hey bud, you killed this guy, that guy, you're a bad guy. Um, how horrible, how terrible. Would you do that in the room with a murderer? Probably not. So Peter was taking on tremendous risk here. He was risking his life, saying these things. He was risking his life. And here's a question I want to ask you. What do you think made him so bold? What do you think made him so bold? I suspect this is it. They had no doubt if you see somebody dying, being raised from the dead, you'd be just as bold, wouldn't you? They had no doubt. They were witnesses. They saw it with their own eyes. There was no doubt. Can you imagine what it must feel like to fear nothing and nobody?
So, we are witnesses, they say. Verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus. That's the key. That's how he's healed. Faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know. What does that tell you? They knew this guy. They saw him every day. Everybody knew this guy. You see him now. You saw him before. You know him. It was by faith in the name of Jesus that he was made strong. It is by faith in the name of Jesus that you and I will be made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. As you can all see, it's clearly evidenced. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. I have a question here. It says, the text says, by faith in the name of Jesus. And then it says, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. So, I think we all agree it was faith that healed this guy. Yo. I think there's a ghost in the church. There's a light just going on and off there at the back. Keeps on catching my eye. Yeah. Did it catch anybody else's eye? It's Casper or... Did somebody die in this church? Somebody get angry in this church. And then die. Thank you, my sister. So, so the question I have is this. Whose faith? Whose faith healed this guy? I think so too. I don't think this guy had faith. He had no idea. But Peter walked there and he knew for a fact the name of Jesus has power. I don't think we get this. I don't think we really get this. That simply faith in the name of Jesus can get us somewhere. I really don't think we believe it. I, I for sure in my own life, don't. Or always. The question then on the table is, if we say tonight, look, I don't have this type of faith. I mean, if you're facing like an impossible situation, how often do you pause for a moment and you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I beg of you, Father, to take this away. How, how often do we really believe in this name? Or when you battle with your own sin, you've got this darkness inside of you. How often do you pause and say, in the name of Jesus, take this evil away from me? Do we believe that faith in the name of Jesus can do anything? Do we believe this? Anything. That faith in the name of Jesus can cleanse us of evil thoughts, feelings, Faith in the name of Jesus can, can heal our lives, can heal even our bodies. What is it that faith in the name of Jesus cannot do? We all agree with the theory, right? But we struggle to uh, do it in our lives. So here's the question. How do we reach the point where we believe faith in the name of Jesus is actually potentially powerful? How do we get to that point? How did these guys get to this point? One word, experience. 
They experienced Jesus. They walked with him for three years. They know exactly who he was. They've seen him do this thousands of times probably. It was a no-brainer for them. Absolute no-brainer. They saw him die on the cross. He was bleeding water and blood when they pierced him. And they saw him again. They saw his wounds. They knew for a fact. The name of Jesus does it. Jesus does it. And the same with us. I think the more we walk with Jesus and the more we live by his name and not our strength and our power and our abilities, the more we give it over to him, do it in his name, the more we'll start seeing that it's powerful, that his name actually does conquer all things and that the demons shudder at his presence and even at his name, that his name is above every name and every power and every force in the universe. What's interesting for me here is that verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. This is the reason why they didn't get it, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah. I went to go look at this, this uh, Greek word over here, and it, it means this, lack of knowledge and moral blindness. Lack of knowledge or moral blindness. And it seems to be that these guys, they didn't... I don't know how to, to put I can see it in my mind's eye what the problem is, but I don't know how to, to verbalize it. But it's not just that they didn't know the scriptures, but it's that they couldn't recognize in Jesus that he was actually behaving like God in flesh. They couldn't see that. They couldn't look at Jesus and realize, oh my goodness, this is actually what God would look like if he was in flesh. They were morally blind and they didn't know the scriptures. So it comes to knowledge. Ignorance comes to, it's sort of a combination of knowledge and your inner morality. It's a combination of the two in a sense. That's what this type of ignorance means. If you, if you know the scriptures and you have a truthful heart, you will recognize the work of Jesus. It's sort of a combination. I hope that makes sense. So if you want to be like Christ and you want to witness God's way and God's will, you've got to spend time in the Word and you've got to keep a pure heart. I believe that's the access to recognize Jesus. All right, let's, let's go on to verse 19. So all of this preaching, you guys did this. So what you need to do is this. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. That verse 21, I, I don't know why, but when I read this, I, I can't remember that I've ever read that in my life. But let's talk about this briefly. He says, repent. In this context, what? Do they have to repent of? This is, I think this is specific and this is unique. This, this, this isn't really a thing of um, repent of your sins. Okay, guys, like uh, all of you who's ever had a lustful thought, you need to turn around now. No, this was specific to the rejection of Jesus. Turn. Repent of the fact that you denied Jesus, that you disowned him, that you rejected him. 
that you pushed him aside and that you refused to acknowledge him as the Messiah. Repent. You know what this smells like to me? This smells like to me like a second chance. I've always thought the people who crucify Jesus, they're the worst people on the planet. There's no help for them. This is the people who crucified him. Do you see that? And it's the same as the crowd in Acts chapter 2. The same as the crowd. Now, I haven't mentioned it yet, but it seems like this is what it looks like happened. In Acts chapter 2, God wants the gospel to spread in the streets. In Acts chapter 3, God wants the gospel to spread in the temple courts among the religious folks. And I believe that's why the miracle happened at the gate. And I believe that's why Luke records the message for us. Because he's telling us about the key events that led to the proclamation of the gospel in strategic areas in Jerusalem. So, he says to them, you have a second chance. You killed Jesus. But repent of that. And in the original language, he's actually saying there with repent and turn to God. Those two words there actually says the following. Think differently. Think differently. Okay. You used to think Jesus is not the Messiah. Change that thought. He is the Messiah. So do a switch in your head. He's the Messiah. That's the word repent. And then secondly, convert. The turn there to God, that's convert. And what he's saying is, like we understand the word conversion, is let go of your Jewish faith, turn to Christ. Because then you're actually turning to God. That's as straight as it gets. Change your mind and turn to God. And when you do this, two things will happen. Look at what the text says. Your sins will be blotted out. And the Greek says, and revival will take place in your life. Your sins will be blotted out by God and you will have a revival. That's the word for refresh there. A better word is revival. You will be revived. I think some of these people were spiritually dead. And they're like, if you want, if you want to be alive and you want, to, you want to bubble up with the living water of, of, of life, this is what you need to do. Have a change of mind. Realize that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? And be converted to Christianity instead of Judaism. In a sense, that's what he's saying. And I think this must have been really hard to accept. It's really hard when somebody tells you, hey, you need to change your mind. Totally. And you need to, you need to be converted, man. It's very, very hard. And then Peter inserts this note, verse 21. The side note. And he says, okay, when you do this, remember the Messiah is going to come back. But the Messiah has gone to heaven and he's going to come back. And when he comes back, guess what he's going to do? He's going to restore everything. The restoration of all things. And what he's saying is, um, life will return like it was before the fall. That ultimate thing is going to happen. And it's been spoken about through the holy prophets. This translation doesn't give it the same way as some other translation. It says it doesn't say long ago through his holy prophets. It says before the foundation of the world. This message was proclaimed that Jesus is going to restore things the way it, as to the way it was in Eden. And I think all of these people who he was talking to, they all wanted this as well. Let's read further, verse twenty-two to twenty-four. For Moses said, 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. It's as if he's saying to them, listen to Jesus or you'll be cut off. And I just want to pause here for a moment. Is everybody awake? Because I'm falling asleep, like hearing my own voice here. Let's just pause a moment here. If you and I, I had a conversation with somebody recently and I said to him, I sent him some scriptures to read through and, and he didn't want to acknowledge those verses. He didn't want to acknowledge that those verses is something he needs to do in his life. And it wasn't trying to be judgmental. He kept on evading it. He didn't want to acknowledge that the answer to his struggle was obedience to the text written by the Holy Spirit. Eventually I said to him, well, then there is no medicine for you. There is no medicine. And I believe it is true. We need to, this need to, we need to soak this up. If you don't listen to everything he tells you, who will he listen to? If we don't listen to the text, who will we listen to? If we don't listen to the Holy Spirit, then who on earth will we listen to? Will we listen to Trump? It's, and this is one of the biggest struggles for me in Christianity. It's just so hard that we see the text. And we, I mean, it's okay if you see the text and somebody tells you, hey, you're actually not doing what the text says. And you say, hey, man, you're right. I'm actually not doing what the text says. And then repent. That's fine. But to say, yeah, the text says that, but I'm still going to do whatever I do. It's the worst thing you can do ever imaginable to, to reject the word of Christ. That's why you get cut off. God will cut you off. You don't belong in his kingdom if you ignore his son. And if you ignore the text. Verse 25, 26. Then we close off. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant of God. The covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you. To bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Do you see the progression here? Jesus came first to who? To the Jews. Then the Jews rejected him. And now Jesus comes to them again. This time in the temple. Isn't this a gracious God? This is Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. He is not keen on sending people to hell. That is not why he came. Jesus Christ didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He gave these guys a second chance. And Peter ends sort of his sermon here and he says, Well, hey, well Jesus came to you in the beginning and he came to bless you. And the blessing is this, to help you turn from your wickedness, which is very interesting. I've never read that in the Bible. So let's, let's conclude. Just some thoughts from me. We can't get people to Jesus by our own power. I've, I've realized this just more and more. I mean, I, 
And, and sometimes, you know, I rely too much on my own mouth, my own intellect to try and help people get to Jesus as if I'm anything. I'm absolutely nothing, and so you and I. Peter and John, they couldn't have planned this. The Spirit did this. The dunamis. Yes, God used them, but we can't get them there by our own power. We're going to meet people in our lives. All we have to be is prayerful and obedient. But at the end of the day, God does the work in people's lives. I mean, since I've been here, I'll, I'll be honest, I've, I mean, I've met many people and spoken to many people. But it feels most of the time as if I'm talking to a brick wall. That's what it feels like. I'm talking to a zombie. Hello? Are you awake? Wee, wee, wee. Not sure if they're there. And I'm like, and in those moments, I just look up to heaven. They think I'm mad. And I just think to myself, Lord in heaven, if you don't change this person's heart, there's nothing I can do. That's what it comes down to. God changes people's heart. Yeah, we can sow seed, but at the end of the day, it's the Spirit that's got to do His work in their lives. So we've got to learn to trust in the work of the Spirit. Secondly, we can't be witnesses if we have not witnessed anything. I don't like this, you know, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, you know, growing up in the church of Christ. This was a denominational way of talking. Hey, I'm going to go witness to this guy. It was like a denominational way of saying things. But in a sense, it's actually a powerful word. Because what does a witness do? A witness witnessed something and is telling others about it. The reason why we struggle sometimes to be evangelistic is because obviously we've witnessed nothing. Because if, if you've witnessed God change your life, you won't keep quiet about it, will you? That's often the struggle. The apostles couldn't keep quiet because they saw a dead man rise from the dead. That's why they couldn't keep quiet. They witnessed it. I want to pause for a moment and ask you a question. What have you witnessed? It's difficult for us who grew up in the church, grew up Christians. Many of us don't know what it feels like to be lost. We don't know what it feels like to be in darkness and to feel the light switch go on and our lives change totally. That's why we find it hard to witness. What do I have to witness? I can witness that I've been sitting in church for 40 years. That's what I can witness. That's what makes it hard sometimes. But if we dig deep and we look back carefully, we'll see that there are some various moments in our lives that God has actually really done some great stuff. And that's the stuff that we witness about. The, the, the message of salvation is simply going to somebody, like I've said before, it's like the evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Just saying, hey, Jesus changed my life, man. This, this, I can't live without him. Here's the reasons. Simple. Thirdly, nothing can, nothing can accomplish anything more than faith in a name. In that name we've spoken about tonight is Jesus Christ. The path to revival is through repentance. I think this is true. Don't want to generalize and make it a law, but I think this is true. One of the best ways, if you feel in your personal life that you need to be revived, the most probable place to start is repentance. A change of mind. A total change of mind. It's a place to start. And lastly, it is a blessing when someone helps you turn from wickedness. That was the last verse. I don't know if you remember that. 
I'll go back to it just to close off with this. Look at that. When God raised, verse 26, raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. It is a blessing when somebody comes in your life and helps you turn from wickedness. It's a blessing. It's not a curse. But somehow or another, we don't interpret it like that. How dare you tell me something I need to change? How dare you point out my faults? Do not judge or you will be judged. It's a blessing when somebody says, hey, I think this is an area of your life that you need to work on. Right. Would anybody like to add something or subtract something with a fist in return? No, I'm joking. Steve, do you have a deep theological thought? Micah, you want to smash it? Alfredo, you want to come up here and preach for us? Granny Becky, are you okay? Look like you had chest pain. Are you okay now? We love you. Best way is not to do drugs. No, I'm just joking. All right. May you have a blessed week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the story. We are excited to see what happens next in the story. Thank you that it's been recorded for us to teach us all these valuable lessons on how your spirit works. And um, Father, we, we speak to you tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm a mouthpiece at this moment on behalf of all the people in this room. But we all believe in your son, Jesus Christ. We all bow our knees in front of him. And by his name, we live our lives. We don't get it right to honor him fully in all of our behaviors and thoughts and actions. But Father, we, we are repentant. We want to do your will. We want to serve you. Father, I ask that your spirit will breathe into our lives, that you will give us, give us witnessing opportunities. Father, work in our lives so we can know you are there and then have something to share with others. Father, if any of us, Father, have some things that we need to repent of, I ask you, Father, that you make it clear as daylight to us. So that we can experience the type of refreshment, the type of revival that we read about in this text. May your spirit come in our midst. Father, we pray for the people in this town. Each one of us will leave this building tonight. I ask you, Father, that you'll keep us safely. But as we go, Father, that you'll send people who's looking for you. And when you do send people looking for you, that we'll know what to say to them. Just be there for them. Listen to them, Father, that your spirit will guide our lips and our ears and our hearts. Father, we pray for those who are ill, those who are struggling. We pray, dear Father, for those who have got heavy hearts that's part of this family that, or people that just attend here. Or, Father, I, I ask you, Father, that you will awaken a desire within them to, to seek you deeply. And I pray that you'll give them a sense of peace that can only come through your spirit. Please bless us this week and the work we have to do. And may your name be glorified as we live out our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.